2: Everybody, everybody. Uh, it's Andy Richter here uh, with another episode of The Three Questions, the podcast you've come to know. Uh, you're supposed to say and love, but I just said to know because I don't know. Do you love this? I mean, you're here. You must like it. Uh, and I'm very excited because uh, I get to talk to one of my favorite journalists, uh, you know, news people, uh, Katie Turr from MSNBC. How are you? Hi,
1: Andy. I was going to add and love to your intro because to know it is to love it.
2: Thank you very much. No, it's I I just tend to, you know, it's the Midwestern self-deprecation thing, which is actually like humility can be one of the most self-aggrandizing things you can do, (laughs) especially performative humility. It really it really, you know,
1: that or a cry for help. (laughs)
2: yeah the one that my favorite is people and it's all la people who make these big shows about talking about gratitude which is like it's like Well, if you were so grateful, you don't have to like tweet about it. I know, know? I know, I know. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, because you are. It's like not only are you getting the points for being grateful, but you're also telling everybody how you're also telling everybody how fucking great your life is. Yeah, Yeah, and how great your life is. I have all this wonderful shit. I'm so grateful. So grateful for my Porsche. Really down to earth for (laughs) the bubble I live in. Well, anyhow, uh, you're from out here, you're used to this bullshit town
1: oh and now i live in new york what does it say about me what does it say about the town i guess
2: i don't know i mean well i mean no well there let's talk about how do you feel about that difference
1: um i you know i love la the way I, i can't not love la it feels like it is a part of me i i love The eucalyptus trees. I love the way the dew smells early in the morning. I love tacos that come on a corn tortilla with cilantro and onions and don't have cheese on them. I love (laughs) driving down sunset with my windows down listening to Tom Petty. I mean, there are parts of L.A. that I feel so deeply with and connect so deeply with that I, you know, I worry that my kids will never really know me because they don't know L.A., how could they know mm. me if they don't know where I grew up? That being said, right. I found L.A. To be, um, I found it to be difficult. I grew up in a really um, posh part of L.A. I mean, it was less posh then than it is today. Today, it's crazy. There's a Chanel boutique in my hometown. Um,
2: which ho- which hometown? The
1: Palisades. And, and I'm from the Palisades, oh, oh, you know, okay. exempt- that was depicted on Curb Your Enthusiasm with Mort's right um not yeah. the palisades now looks a bit like disneyland and it's really weird yeah. and unfamiliar to me um but I,
2: that's rick caruso it right is, it's Carus- a recursive yeah, yeah. thing
1: and, and i actually yeah you know before he was running and i'm making no judgment on his campaign or his ability as a politician. But they were doing this. There was a farmer's market at the Palisades and they were doing this presentation about this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be so great. It's just like the Grove. And I remember just arguing with the kid doing the presentation, saying, you're going to ruin
2: it. It's going to be horrible. (laughs) Get out of here. It's going to be just like the Grove. Exactly. It's It's going to be just like the Grove. The (laughs) Grove is nice because it's where it is. It's like you don't want to live in the Grove, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I, I grew up in this LA very, sector, very
1: happy, posh little neighborhood. And um, I don't know. I just always felt like when I was in L.A., I never fit in. Like I was never carrying the right purse and I was never driving the right car. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. I didn't love like that you drive through neighborhoods in Los Angeles. I mean, it's a big melting pot, they say. But you barely interact with anybody that isn't in your direct social circle, and yeah. in New York you get in the subway and everyone's on the subway, the bankers on the right. subway, the mayor's on the subway, you know, the, the bank teller is on the subway. Everybody is on the subway. And yeah. I, and I like that about New York. You're a forced interaction.
2: Yeah. I, I, I am totally with you because out here too, it's like you go from your air conditioned box to your air conditioned box to get it into another air conditioned yeah. box. So the chances for interaction are very small. And I like, you know, like you said this some way, but like to me, I was always struck by, it doesn't matter how wealthy they are, they still have to smell urine in the summer. They still, they still. Yes. I have their nostrils full of the stench of Let urine. Let me
1: tell you, there is no the, better June way to, to feel alive than the smell of warm <laughs> rotting urine in the summer. Yep, yeah,
2: the heat coming off the pavement, oh, the yeah. combining. Oh man, I think
1: it's it's a sweet, that's, sweet smell of success.
2: Right, that's the one of the most humanizing things we can we can do is people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, uh, well, now, do you think when you say you don't fit in, I mean, first of all, knowing a little, I know a little bit about Los Angeles, having lived here for 20 years, that neighborhood, too, is a particularly kind of snobby, snobby neighborhood.
1: Oh, and I don't think it was growing up. I'm not even talking about the Palisades particularly. I'm talking about, I don't know, I went to posh private high schools. Um, Which one? I went to Brentwood. And I got a great education, um, a really top-notch A-plus education. I had some incredible teachers. And I also have friends that I I made there that are my friends for life. But, you know, Mm -hmm. the kids that I grew up with were, like, they came from backgrounds that I couldn't. I mean, this is going to sound like I'm complaining. I'm not. I I grew up in a nice background for the most part, too, um, in some ways. Uh, But it just felt like they were part of this echelon that you could never reach. And yeah. I don't know. It was weird. It was weird. I, I just, I think mostly, I just didn't never felt like I was, I was, a, I, I quite fit in. And I, what I loved about New York is I could walk out of my apartment in my pajamas. I could walk out of my apartment in a ball gown. I could walk out of my apartment in an Elmo costume, and nobody would look <laughs> sideways at me. Yeah. It
2: would yeah, be normal. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. liked that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, now when you were in school, I mean, what, what sort of Group did you fit into? Was there sort, you know? I don't know. I guess I was like. Was there an? You know, I thought
1: I was cool, but you? I think I was a bit of a dork. I wanted to be cool. I mean, I think I was. I, I want to think that I was part of the, the more thoughtful, sarcastic group mm-hmm. of kids. That was my, my niche. Yeah. Niche. Niche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I took a lot of pictures. I, I remember I, I had my dad love photography, and he instilled a love of photography in me, and. You know, I had, a, I had a Canon camera, a Sony camera, and I would, um or Nikon, and I would take pictures of everybody in class. And I thought it was cool, mm-hmm. you know, who wouldn't want a photo of themselves? And there was one time where a couple of the girls in my class looked at me and they were like, ugh, you're always taking pictures. You're such a nerd. <laughs> and it was like this one moment. <laughs> and it, I don't know why, but it really, it really stuck with me. and made me feel ashamed. And I, I just remember thinking, like,
2: screw you. Girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and especially now, like what kids now, especially girls, I'm sure girls in the Palisades are practically fucking cinematographers. Oh, yeah. Oh, point, yeah. With their cameras.
1: Know. I know. Yeah. I know.
2: And their ring lights and they're, you know, like knowing where to hold the camera. And, you know, uh, I mean,
1: and you, you're yeah. talking about ring lights. You should look at my face right now and the 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 tomato red that i have because i don't have i don't have a, link, a ring light you in don't it. have
2: your ring light yeah yeah i should have I should. yeah no i well yeah, i'm in my daughter's bedroom because uh the cleaning person is here today so <laughs> i'm you know i did i took the like the the stuffed animal off the bed just so it would you know there was so it would look more adult work. okay good job yeah yeah see that well and also it's the like, one direction you know, poster
1: i think is great <laughs>
2: Oh my god, she would be so offended. There's <laughs> no one direction poster here. She would be so offended. <laughs> that um, was the, the
1: Hansen poster. That was my day.
2: Was that your day? Yeah. yeah. Now, uh I mean not to not to darken the subject, but you had a pretty rough growing up at home, though. There was there it was a it was a tumultuous household. And you sort of you go into that a lot in, in the book, uh, your new book, which is Rough Draft which is sort of like a memoir of, of, of well, 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 you know, everyone knows a memoir is memoir is your life, you know? <laughs> um, and do you think that that contributed somehow to like this, this, this feeling of discomfort? In?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think my, and going back and trying to excavate my life, which at the ripe old age of 38 is kind of laughable. Um, But I I went back and I tried to understand how I grew up and try to confront some of the stuff that I had been running away from physically. I live in New York and not in LA. And it was, as you said, a tumultuous childhood. There were really, really great moments, truly spectacular, um, unique, one-of-a-kind moments that I feel lucky to to have experienced. Uh, and, And there was a lot of love in my family, Um, that was genuine and real. But that's exactly what made trying to go back and understand it so complicated, because at the same time, you know, there was a lot of anger and there could be emotional abuse, uh, manipulation, and there was sometimes physical violence involved with it. And I, 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 I think in looking at my friends' families, I would see kids whose parents were married and didn't seem to fight all that much, um, who, you know, there was, I, I crashed my car a few times on sunset. And one of the times I was so afraid to tell my dad about it because I was so afraid of, of the rage he would get into that I went to my friend's house and I, I basically just hated her house and had her dad deal with my dad. And I remember thinking- oh, wow. Yeah, I just remember thinking like, They what what must these people think of me? And and maybe they didn't think anything of it. Maybe or maybe they didn't judge me personally, but I I I ran away because I wanted to be a person who didn't have all of that following her around.
2: Yeah, Uh, yeah. Well, it's certainly understandable. I mean, and it it's like you know, my ex wife has a story of getting in a wreck in her dad's car and calling him and saying, dad, I've been in a wreck. And his first statement was, you know how much I love that car. (laughs) Like not, not, not how are, I mean, you can laugh about it now because it's, it's from the (laughs) viewpoint, especially when you become a parent, it's, it's just like, that is just bizarre. What a bizarre thing to say. And, and really so, so, like it just lays naked. Just what, why are you doing this? Why did you have children? Yeah. If, if this is like, and this is what your priorities are. This is, you know, in a pinch, this is what you think of is yourself, you know? Well,
1: it's those memories of those kind of just completely ludicrous or insensitive moments that, that, yeah become good fodder for storytelling later in life right right sure um and, so they, and that you
2: end up laughing about because like what are you gonna cry all
1: exactly, the time, you know? exactly 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 yeah. and i mean this is the sort of stuff that um the stuff i go back, go to try to figure out in the book i mean it, it is that kind of stuff it's stuff that i you know would tell in a funny way to my friends
2: hear it yeah. like
1: little snippets of it not you know the our uglier sure. stuff and we'd laugh because what else are you gonna do
2: yeah. Well, was there a something that sort of triggered you wanting to tell the story and, and tell it as a book?
1: Yes. Remember, we were going through a pandemic.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah that, thing. that thing. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So in the middle of it, you know, back in, at the time where everyone was so freaked out, they didn't want to leave their house. And, you know, I was washed a head of garlic with dish
2: soap. I, I remember that. <laughs> That's so cool. Cr- I washed the head of that that was, Oh my God. To find out that that was all a waste of time. Yes. It's just infuriating. I Because thought- I was not washing my groceries like I supposedly should have. Like I'm not Windexing the box of cereal or whatever. And I always felt like, oh my God, I'm going to get it. And then to find out later... Like, shit, I didn't need to feel guilty at all. That was ridiculous. Oh, I,
1: I, I washed the boxes. I, I started to lose it. I mean, going into the supermarket, I was wearing masks and a hood and glasses. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going into Hazmat the death suit. zone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in the middle of this, I uh, I started to feel really isolated. I was broadcasting my show from my basement. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't see anybody but my husband and my, at the time he was two, I was pregnant with my my second kid. And, um, I, you know, I just wonder, you know, I'm going am I going to lose my job? Is the business going to crater? And then I started to think I'm doing this job and I'm talking to everybody about a deadly virus, but I live in a country that can't agree on a life or death issue. They can't even agree if the, if the virus exists. And I started to wonder, is journalism doing good anymore? Am I doing mm. good anymore as a journalist? Is my life as it is currently being lived worth it, I really started to spiral. And, um, you know, where do I go next? What am I doing? Like, how do I I get out of this? And my mom in the middle of it sent me, um, a documentary was made on my parents and their business, their careers. And in the process of making the documentary, they digitized all of the thousands and thousands of hours of news footage that they had captured over the years. Um, And alongside all of that news footage was all of my childhood videos because the news camera on in one second would be filming a police pursuit. And in the next would be filming, filming my brother and I in the helicopter going for a ride. Yeah. And so basically had my life story, my inheritance on it. And I realized that, you know, I was scared to open it up because I knew I would find some great stuff in it. But I also knew I'd find some of the scary stuff that I I didn't want to talk about. that didn't even want to tell my husband. But I realized that, I, you know, as everyone does at some point, that you got to confront your past to figure out what your future is.
2: Mm-hmm. Had you been through therapy to kind of confront these things
1: much? So Yeah, I had. I When I moved to New York, I, I spent a, a year with a therapist and I would walk in and I would cry my eyes out from start to beginning or start, or start to finish. Yeah. I would just ball, 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 ball. And it was all focused on my dad. And I, I realized that I had been harboring so much resentment and so much anger. And after about a year, um, you know, I was also in a relationship that I, that I shouldn't be in. And I it was like, it was like a mental mess. Um, and after about a year, I just like, I threw up my arms and I said, I'm exhausted by this. I can't do it anymore. And I started to, you know, change things in my life and things started to get better. It wasn't until I got older and, I threw a potato at my husband's head, which sounds funny, you know, Yeah, yeah. but I yeah, threw, yeah. I was so angry at him over dishes that I threw a potato at his head and I thought, Oh my God, you cannot, you got to stop this. This is, this is your yeah. dad and you're not passing this on to your kids. And also yeah. like your husband might be okay with it. My husband might be okay with it right now. He might not be happy about it, but we'll forgive you. If you keep doing this, he's not going to forgive you.
2: Yeah. And did the potato hit him?
1: No, I've bad aim.
2: Oh, see, that would be that's a difference right there, too. And I i mean, uh, you know, we're this we're playing this for laughs, but it is it is true. Like if the potato had landed, it's a totally different thing than like, oh, ha ha. Remember that time? Yeah. Threw a potato at you. Yeah. And it, it triggered in me like huge regret and, uh, you know, giant red alarm bells and, you know, re- uh, flashing red lights. And
1: yeah, if you had to go on, on morning um, television with a black eye and had to explain that his wife threw a potato <laughs> at him.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. It would have been an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, it was, it, you know, when you started that therapy, what was what how was this like what was manifesting itself in your life? that that made you sense like ah, I need to talk to somebody about this stuff
1: this is this the first time that i did therapy yeah yeah, yeah. um i so i moved to New york i i fled Los angeles and just to give people some backstory here my parents you probably knew them if you lived in la um in the 80s or 90s and you saw any police pursuit on television um, they they started a company called Los Angeles news service. My dad was the pilot and a reporter. My mom shot all the videos. So my dad Bob her would report the live events as they were happening. The OJ chase, the Reginald Denny beating uh, Madonna, giving <laughs> the camera, the bird on her wedding day to Sean Penn, my parents footage. Uh, and my mom would <laughs> hang out of the helicopter with a big giant camera on her shoulder and capture the images below, literally hang out of the helicopter just with this seatbelt basically strapping her in. Um, did they invent that? They invented it. You could say that they, yeah. if they didn't invent it outright, they popularized it. There there were news helicopters before, but they weren't used every day. They might've been the second police pursuit. I can't nail this down, uh, but they also might've been the first police pursuit. They were the ones though that, that did it live and proved that, it was compelling television so much so that when the news broke in with this with this chase, they broke into Matlock. The ratings beat Matlock. And that's yeah. when that's when the station <laughs> knew it had a hit on its hands. Get yeah, us yeah. these police chases.
2: Right. And now every every time there's one. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, every TV is tuned to it. I've know. got a
1: hot tip for you. If you're going to lead the police on a chase. Head toward an airport because there's a no fly zone there and the helicopters can't find you or to an airport or to a parking garage or parking garage at an airport. Even better.
2: Right. You're welcome. Hey, you're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. On the (laughs) lamers. I'm joking. Uh... I'm
1: obviously joking. (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, there's a friend of mine lives in a neighborhood that's kind of it backs up against a golf course and there it's near the 101 and he said that it's like where police kind of try and push people into his neighborhood for uh, high speed chases because then they can it's like it becomes a little trap that they can trap them so, in. so smart. it's like something they don't reveal when you buy a house yeah. in there, but you know but there <laughs> it, You're it gonna is get
1: very familiar with the pit maneuver my friend <laughs> yeah
2: yeah Can't you tell my love's a growing so did the, i mean i imagine this means your parents life is not fully their own no They're... no no,
1: no. they 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 live by the police scanner my mom would sleep with it in her ear and she would know there was a story by the change in pitch of the of the um of the officer on the radio or or the fire department official on the radio if their pitch changed and the chatter got um louder or more animated um she would wake up and she'd realize there was a story and, and they'd be out the door so it would happen in the middle of the night it would happen during meals i mean i wow. we learned to eat our meals within you know minutes right speed right. eating because you never knew when you were gonna get called out you'd wanted to you wanted Have to finish to it out. yeah
2: yeah where, where was the chopper like in re, in relation to your house
1: so we live in the palisades the helicopter was it at, at santa monica airport it was, oh, wow. you know, 15 minutes without traffic, 25 usually with, you could usually bypass a lot mm-hmm. of the traffic. Um, and they would, they could get in the air very quickly, very quickly. Mm-hmm.
2: And were there days when they just would kind of be up there waiting for something to happen?
1: Well, you don't generally fly and wait for something to happen because the jet fuel costs so much money, but of they course. would be, um, they'd be hanging around listening to the scanners at the airport on, on big days, like the day uh, the riots broke out, the, the day that they announced the verdicts for uh, Rodney King. The, so they announced that the officers who beat up Rodney King were acquitted. The city knew that something could happen. So everybody was on alert. My parents were in the air thinking that if the officers were acquitted, some unrest might break out in South Central. And they happened to be over, I think, the intersection of Florence and Normandy. And that is where stuff did break out. I mean, there was looting and um, fires being set then a guy got pulled out of a red gravel truck and my mom captured mm-hmm. as people threw all manner of things at his head, including a brick. And I mean, they just knew the city so well at that moment that they could anticipate how Angelinos would react and where it would react to mm-hmm.
2: things. Do you think, <laughs> I mean, it just occurred to me, it's never occurred to me before, but do you think that maybe Florence and Normandy became a center of the activity because they were overhead, right? Because there was a chopper up there.
1: No, I don't know. I, I, that's a good question. I did. They, do you want to get captured on, on film doing illegal stuff, trying to kill a guy?
2: I guess that's true. Well, you know,
1: I don't know. I mean, the the guys were all, they were all convicted.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well um, now you, you, this is a family business. So I imagine you and your brother are being towed along with this kind of stuff, and you know, I mean, you, I hope you guys weren't in the chopper that no, day. No, 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 we were not okay, in the chopper yeah, yeah. that day.
1: We, um, we went in the chopper a lot, not on some of the scarier stories, not always at least, but you know, we've been in the chopper over, over, uh, you know, fires, and I think over some pursuits, definitely over fires. I remember we would get so close to the flames, or the, the flames would just frankly be so hot. Um, for these Malibu fires, that you could feel it on your shins, because the door wow. would be open, and you just you would feel the wind gusts and the and the flames almost licking at the um, at the helicopter skids. It was wild. It was really wild. Yeah. But then there were also really yeah. fun days where we would go to Catalina for lunch, or we go to Santa Barbara for lunch, or we would just go buzz the early morning surfers along um, <laughs> and the beachgoers along the beach. Or just go, you know, like, let's go, let's go check out the Hollywood sign for fun. I mean, there were all sorts yeah. of things that we did in that helicopter that were, you know, just joy rides for the kids.
2: Mm-hmm. Special stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so does that mean, I mean, was it kind of just expected that you were going to kind of get into that line of work?
1: No, early on, my dad would point the camera at me. And there's a great video of me as a four-year-old, I think or three-year-old giving a live news report. He, he kept saying, you know, talk about the the lady on the news. And I looked at him funny and he said, give a live report to KNX 1070. And I it clicked and I said, there was a fire in San Diego. And I went on and, yeah, and just imagined what story it might be. Um, so I, I, early on, you know, we'd uh, we'd he'd, put a camera on me or when we were driving when I was older, he'd say, do a live report about what you're seeing in front of, in front of you. Just like talk, talk off the top of your head about the world around you. And I didn't like it at all. I hated it by that time. I was so annoyed by it. Um, Mm -hmm.
2: And what age is this? This
1: is like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Uh I mean, he did it for years. And I think it was actually probably pretty good training because I do that for a living now. But at the time, I thought it was not cool and not fun. And I thought my dad was so annoying.
2: And then the 13, that's that's 13. (laughs) 13's rough.
1: And then the business fell apart for them when I was 14, just completely fell apart. And at that point... um, I had no desire to follow in their footsteps. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a lawyer, something stable, something that everybody would always need.
2: What, When you say the business fell apart, is that because uh, they, news outlets started getting their own choppers?
1: My parents were unparalleled in their ability to scoop the competition. Hands down. Mm-hmm. They were better than anybody else. But my dad had this rage within him. Mm-hmm. And the rage would come out at my mother. It would come out sometimes at us. It would come out at the people that he worked with. It would come out at people in positions of authority. I mean, there's video of my dad getting into like fisticuffs with cops. Um, there's audio of my dad saying to my mom in the helicopter, I don't know how to communicate with you except through violence. And a lot of the time, as these like very tense fights would happen, my dad would be berating my mom. um, The stations would be able to hear it because we'd be feeding video back, and the and the comms would be on. They could hear it. And I think he just became too much of a live wire, too much of a liability for the station. They didn't want to deal with him any longer. They could hire somebody else. They could get their own chopper. They might not be first to every story, but they didn't need. They didn't need Los Angeles news service.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, did that affect the finances at home?
1: Oh, yeah. We went from they never bought a house. We were always renting, but they went from, you know, decent paychecks because the stations didn't pay them a lot, but they made a lot of money on the, the footage. They owned everything so the they could resell footage. it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, It went from, you know. A living that could afford two Porsches, renting a nice house in the Palisades, two private school tuitions, trips to Hawaii in the summer and to Mammoth in the in the in the winter. We went from that to not really being able to afford anything. Like the Porsches left, um, the helicopter was gone, the hangar was gone the rent would go unpaid for months bill collectors started calling we learned not to answer the phone they got rid of our health care i mean tv <laughs> no more cable
0: yeah
2: wow that's yeah that's that's uh that's uh having lived in a household as a child with uh widely variable income uh i can relate to that and i know like again the stress of that, the stress of that landing on you, especially in high school, you know, you're, you're going out. I mean, cause I, when you say I learned at an early age, uh, I don't know if I should be, saying, <laughs> I learned at an early age, uh, what, uh, to sense a bill collector. Like I got a bill yeah. collector radar at an early age and in thinking back on that thinking, Oh my God, I, I,
1: it, I, remember wouldn't, when the phone, I wouldn't let
2: my kids answer the phone if I thought a bill collector Remember I could when call. the phone
1: would ring and you'd tense up? You know, there, wasn't a, yeah. there was an excitement for me that who might be on the other line? Who might be calling? Could it be one of my yeah. friends, a uh, family member, whatever, a guy that I like? It would be, oh, it's going to be somebody who's calling about the credit card bill or somebody, or maybe it's our landlord calling about the rent. And I remember just having this terror uh, about what might be said on that phone call, what we might lose yeah. next.
2: Yeah. Now that I imagine makes you be in a hurry to get out the door. Yeah.
1: I mean, college, um, I went to state school, which lucky, lucky for me, I lived in California. So state school was UC Santa Barbara. Um, took out a bunch of loans and, uh, went up there, but I was still very connected to my parents. So I was, I was home all the time. I didn't really know how to Mm -hmm. say goodbye. Um, it was when I graduated from college when on my graduation day my mom was there sitting alone and my dad was in another part of the graduation sitting alone and I remember thinking why aren't they sitting together and I go up to my mom and I say what's going on she said we're getting a divorce <laughs> oh,
2: wow.
1: and I said what do you mean you're getting a divorce um, why are you telling me this to me today Tell tell me tomorrow like not today Uh, I found out later that she made the decision because the night before she had come home and she had asked my, this is after they lost the helicopter and my dad was trying to film a documentary, um, and he was editing it at his edit bay in the house. He had all, he would spend his money on camera equipment and edited equipment, stuff that he would, he would say were investments in a future business. And these things like he would buy it with the intention of using it, but it would never really pan out too much. So we, we just end up with debt for technology. Um, but anyway, my mom comes in and asks him how, how the edit's going. And he turns around and just punches her in the sternum. Like not hi, not hello, not it's going well, it's going badly. Um, just punches her in the sternum. And she at that point said, I, I haven't, I've had enough. Like Katie is done with school. I'm, I'm done. We're, she's launched. We're good. And it was shortly after that that I, that I decided to pick up and move to New York.
2: Mm. so well had that been something you were considering
1: no you know I stayed in LA for about um about a year I got a job at KTLA in Los Angeles and I liked it but you know uh, the the legacy of my parents was following me around one of my first days Mm -hmm. at KTLA I walk in and the assignment editor looks at me and says oh god I remember the way your dad used to yell at your mother in the helicopter. And I thought, oh, great. (laughs) And the news director would say to me, like, jokingly, but also not totally jokingly, it's a miracle you can walk straight. Um, And so I I, I just thought I got to go somewhere else. I got to go somewhere else. And at the time, New York had a, a little station called News 12. Still has it. News 12, the Bronx in Brooklyn, which was, was a place mm-hmm. that you could start with no experience. You could be a reporter with no experience. Just send a, a reel that you had made. And I'd made like, you know, a mock dummy reel of me doing news reports. I got sent to the news director and the news director said, OK, we can bring you in for a tryout. And I got a job there.
2: Now, I, again, I you know, going back to you, you majored in philosophy, right? You know, do I remember? I that did. Correctly? I did. I did. And had you were you did you have your eye on journalism the entire time?
1: So I first majored in art studio. I was a painter and a photographer.
2: Uh-huh. Nice.
1: But I said, don't worry, mom and dad, I'm gonna go to law school. This is just, I just I'm gonna start out with this degree, but I'm gonna go to law school, don't worry. I can do anything and go to law school. After a couple of years, oh, first it was med school and I did pre-med on the side, but I got, I failed out of calculus. Like I just got an F on one of my calculus.
2: <laughs> and I said, I
1: can't do this. Um, and then, so i oh, don't worry, I'm going to be a lawyer. And after a couple years, I missed words on a page. And so I became a philosophy major because I thought philosophy is interesting. It t- talks about the big questions of the universe. I enjoy thinking about those things. And also it's great prep for um, law school. It's a great prep for howing for, Learning how to argue. Sure. Yeah, how to think. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I was going to do. It was not intended for journalism.
2: Well, did you have, I mean, was it, a, did you have a mixed, mixed emotions about going into this? You know, I mean, into like journalism? Say, like,
1: no. I mean, I, at the yeah. time I, I hadn't, you know, I, I hadn't fully confronted everything that I had grown up with, but at the time I just thought, what an adventure this is going to be. I don't want to sit and, at a desk with stacks of paper around me and reading through legal briefs it sounds kind of boring i want to
0: mm-hmm.
1: i want to drive into the middle of a fire and feel the flames around me i want to mm-hmm. you know i i love the movie broadcast news i wanted to be a field producer and go to war torn areas or a national geographic photographer see the world i wanted yeah. adventure and the news felt like a good path way to a life filled with discovery and adventure
2: yeah now do you think you would have been that way regardless of who your parents were that's such, or do you think such that- a good
1: question i don't know you know i think about this all yeah. the time i look at people who get into this business who have no connection to it whose parents were accountants or something like that and i just wonder how'd you get into news like what sparked it in you because yeah, for me yeah. it just felt so ingrained
2: right and you had an experience to the adrenaline.
1: Yeah, exactly. You
2: know, to the thrill of it. Like you, you, you got a contact high from all of this going on with your parents your whole life. Absolutely. But you obviously separated yourself enough from, you know, this is this being your parents thing. That you could see yourself in it without it being your parents' thing.
1: Yes, I could. And I but I wanted to make that separation even clearer, which is why I moved across the country. I, yeah. I thought, you know, I learned great lessons from them on how to do this, on how to how to be a journalist, what you need to get a story, what you need to to push for answers, to stand up to authority when you need to. Um, I know how to had the basis of how to put it together, how to shoot a camera, how to edit, how to write, how to present. But I also felt like I learned how to not do it from them as well, to not do it on my own, but to do it within a system. I'm going to go into a network and I'm going to be a reporter at a network with all of the support that that provides and the opportunity that that provides. I thought that would mean that I would have more job security than they did.
2: Yeah. Do you think there was an aspect because that you, you're sort of leading into question that I would have, which is, do you think there was an aspect of that you were going to do this, but you were going to do it right? I was going
1: to do it right. Like, I was going to make friends. Yeah, yeah. I was going to make friends. People were going to like yeah. me. I I wasn't going to yell at everybody, but I was going to be a bulldog. I was going to go out there and get the story. But I mean, I knew that the bar was pretty high. My parents have won uh, a Murrow Award. They won two. A Peabody Award, multiple Emmys, Golden Mikes, AP Spot News Awards. They've won every award you can imagine in the news business. It's really hard to compete with that. And they also created a new thing.
2: But still, if you do it right you know, you're doing it right. And they know you're doing it right. And they will see you having a career that is <laughs> absent of tumult. <laughs> and, and, you know, and to where you, you you know, it, it, your professionalism rises above theirs, you know, and that, that's got to be, you know, I don't know, well, I mean, maybe I mean, I'm it, just projecting my own sort of like, I'll show them. No, I don't know. think it
1: was so much that. I mean, it was, I think there's, that's a hard question. I do think that they worried that they didn't want me to get into this business at first. And I think that they worried that the business would tear me apart the way it tore them apart. And to be fair, this business is not kind. And I say no. that, you know, I talk about job stability. There is no job stability. They could decide tomorrow. They don't want me on television any longer. They don't think that I'm good enough. And I'd be gone. They might have to yeah. They might have to pay the rest of my contract, but there's no reason for them to, to keep me on TV. I mean, and it's the kind of business that there's very few people that walk away from it willingly. Mm. Very few people that say, okay, I'm t- it's time for me to retire. I've had enough. I'm going to yeah. go live my life. Pete Williams, who's who's in the office next door to me, our justice correspondent, legendary guy, is retiring in a couple weeks. He's walking away from it. That is so rare. Usually yeah. you have to get pulled out um, and tossed out.
2: Why do you- why do you think that is? Is it the adrenaline? Is there is there just such a charge from doing it? I think it? it's the adrenaline, it's the, the
1: the curiosity, it's the love of learning. But I do think there's an addictive quality to that little red light above the camera that says you're mm. on air, people are listening to you. Don't you feel that yeah, yeah. to a degree?
2: Hmm. I would say no. Really? I would yeah, I do like performing uh for I, I do like making stories i like making comedy i like but i i prefer acting to being myself um so yes i really do like i still have like a completely childlike excitement about being on it at a movie studio or like you know we're gonna blow up a car today like all of that stuff is still tremendously fun to me and I really do I was just talking to my daughter about this this morning. It's like i I have kind of i think structured my life in a way. I mean, I'm a responsible grown up relatively speaking, but I do my my main pursuit is my own good time and you know, like i try I try to do things that i'm go where I know I'm gonna enjoy myself mm-hmm. and and i've got and that has i mean that was always an instinct, but as I've gotten older, it's more refined, because I also know, as a producer, that's where I'm best. Yeah. It's like, if I'm having a shitty time, it's gonna be hard for me to really entertain people or do a good job as whether it's a game show host or as a, an actor in a show. If I'm miserable, it's not gonna be so good. If I'm happy and having fun, if I'm gonna be at my best.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that, but I don't think that's a majority. Uh, I don't think a majority of us in front of the camera or in, in public-facing positions um, entertainment, news, whatever positions. I don't know if we're all so in touch with our, with ourselves, the way you sound uh, like you well,
2: are. Well, I, I, you know, I'm talking, we're talking, I have a vacation home of therapy, you know, <laughs> a vacation home's worth of therapy in this brain. And, you know, and lots of, lots of really amazing pharmaceuticals over the years. So, <laughs> I mean, I can't take full credit for it. But yeah, I mean, I also, too, I mean, it's not, a, it's not, I've said this so many times, it's not a coincidence that I was a sidekick. I don't need it yeah. the way a lot of people yeah. need it. And I, I like it. I like doing it. I like being part of the team, but I don't need it. And I have, from my first improv days, because when you're on stage, you know, you get on stage with people, you're 22, 1 2019 20, whatever. You get on stage with people and there are people who realize, holy shit, that guy is making up for something. That guy is somebody did not give that guy the attention that he needed. And now he's out here trying to get it. And my feeling was always like, all right, go ahead. Yeah, you go out there, go out there and get it. Because I also had and I mean, I quickly learned you go get it. You go sweat because I'll come in at the end and. (laughs) <laughs> I'll come in at the end and top you, you know, I isn't mean,
1: also the armchair analysis, uh, psychoanalysis of Donald Trump.
2: Um. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that. well, but I mean. Yeah, he's I, I don't even want to. I mean, Jesus, we'll, we'll get to that okay. for sure. Great. <laughs> um, right. But um, now you know, it is television. You know, you're a journalism, but you're also television. So in television, I don't care what kind of television is. It's entertainment. Yeah. And how, like, do you have to cope with that early on, that kind of tension? Definitely,
1: definitely. And I think it comes out. And how do you do it? Well, it comes out in a few ways. One, you have to learn how to perform what you're saying. Um, And that is, it's just a, a fundamental skill of communication. So if you... Are dead behind the eyes if you have no life in your read if you have no connection to the words that you're reading um people aren't going to pay attention you have to have mm-hmm. a certain uh, performative command in front of the camera mm-hmm. uh that and as i learned when i was on my one of my first at one of, at my first reporting job at News 12, the Bronx and Brooklyn, I was called into the news director's office, and he said, "You're great. We're going to hire you." There's just one thing, two things really, three things actually. Uh, your <laughs> your your boobs look too big for your clothes, and I said, "Okay." Uh, you need different clothes, and I remember being mortified, but saying, you know, nodding my head and understanding. Uh, your hair isn't right, and he handed—he slid over the table—a binder full of a binder full of women, um, with glossy pictures of haircuts that he said I should get. They were short, severe bob cuts with streaky highlights. And oh, by the way, you can't be Katie. Your name is taken. You're going to have to be Catherine, as in Katie Couric was Katie, and I couldn't right, also be right, Katie.
2: Right, right, right.
1: Um, and that made me realize that. <laughs> There is a persona that is expected of you in this in this business. But it, it didn't take me long to realize that the persona, if that persona is unfamiliar to you, if the persona isn't you, if it's not authentic, then you're sinking fast. It
0: doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, yeah.
1: So the, the trick is to, yeah, to well, be just a bigger version of yourself, I guess.
2: Right. Well, and uh, and how do you cope? Well, I guess it's not really your concern because there is there's the performance aspect. But then there's also, you know, what a lot of people get frustrated with, which is the editorial aspect of the entertainment of news, like the stories that are chosen to be covered. And I mean, how much of a struggle is that for you where sometimes you feel like you're being pushed to cover things that are sort of not necessarily what one would prioritize in terms of. Important. So I wouldn't say I'm ever pushed to cover
1: something. Um, it is often a matter of resources. I would mm-hmm. love to cover, I, I wish I had more stories about climate change in my broadcast. Yeah, And it frustrates me that I don't. And I can have Michael Mann on every day to talk to me about what's happening around the world. And I often do have him come on, but I need somebody who's on the ground showing me what's happening. I'm yeah. more than just a talking head on my show. Or I need to be going somewhere and doing a documentary about it. Or just seeing it happen in real time and doing the interviews. And I'm not in charge of making the decisions on where to send reporters. And so I'm limited in that way. And believe me, it's very frustrating. Um, we, cover, we cover break day of air news mostly during the dayside hours. So it, it often lends toward the top political story of the day, which is why if you turn on any cable show right now, other than Fox, you're probably going to see the January 6th hearings, hearings front and center, because that is, that is the, in some ways, one of, one of the, or if not the most important story in the country right now, because it's a story about our democracy and whether our democracy is going to survive. Um, On other days, it'll be something like Uvalde, where holy shit, something terrible has happened, and we've gotta we've gotta put our train our cameras to it, even though it's painful, so that people understand what is happening with these guns. Mm-hmm. And that you know resulted in it seems like Congress actually moving on some form of gun legislation. Uh, there's some room it's later, you know. There's some room in the show for me to to pick out stories that I don't think are being covered enough. Um, and I I like to focus on paid parental leave, which I think is Mm -hmm. an important issue for anybody who wants to start a family in this country, which is less and less or fewer and fewer people now because the birth rates going down, it's not easy to start a family. It's not financially easy to start a family. Um, but, you know, mostly Andy, what we're limited by is, is resources. Do we have enough reporters to cover all the things that are going on? And our resources depend on, um, it's ugly, but they depend on ratings. Yeah. If we have enough viewers and we can sell enough ad time, then we get more money for news organ- for the news organization yeah. and for news gathering. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the way that we have structured the news business here. We're not government funded. We're not the BBC. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I know, I'm not saying too, because, you know, I think there are people that are always like, you know, that they just they just think that, you know, the news business, like, why aren't you just talking about the thing, you know, like basically sort of a laundry list of mostly liberal causes? Yeah. And and, and that's that I think tends to be a very common critique of the news in your but, circles. But there are other circles where the most common yeah.
1: critique of the news is they're is that, not covering not, conservative stories, or they're yeah, not covering yeah. crime. Right, so it just right. depends on what circle you're in.
2: Yeah, that's true. But I, I mean, I to me, I always, I, I, having been in television for so many years, I appreciate you're. you're if you have a restaurant, you got to serve what people are going to eat, and so the news is what You know, like people, there isn't like some Machiavellian plot to keep people ill informed. It's like, no, it's (laughs) quite the opposite. Depends on what (laughs) network you're watching. (laughs) Well, okay, that's fine. But I mean, in general terms, you know, like, a legit news organization wants to tell people what they want to hear about. So to bring it back to, to,
1: I discussed this in the book. And so my parents, as I said, popularized television news gathering from the air. Uh, Live, immediate, in your face, now, now, now. Get these police chases on the air. Look at the ratings. People are coming in. They're watching. Um, And there are, are colleagues of theirs that have said that they are responsible for the downfall of TV news. They're responsible for the way TV news got ruined. And they don't really dispute it. And I don't really dispute it because they were the first to show that reality TV as news was compelling. And drove viewers. And I think you can draw draw a pretty straight line from that to the way we cover politics, the way we covered Donald Trump Mm -hmm. in 2015 and 2016, Mm -hmm. the way we're covering politics now. Uh, I pick out in the book um, the bar summary. Remember when the bar summary came out before the Mueller report? Yeah. And I very stupidly in retrospect, volunteered to cover it. It was on a weekend. I said, I'll come in. I I was 10 months pregnant, Andy. I was about to give birth to my first kid. And I said, I got to be there. I want to cover it. I've been doing the story day in and day out. I want to see how it ends. And so we get the summary on a Sunday after all this buildup, all everyone's watching, you know, you're going to get it in 30 minutes. Viewers tune in. Let's get people to, to come on. There's graphics, the bar summary of the Mueller report. And we get it, and it's just a few paragraphs. There's no underlying evidence. There's no words from Robert Mueller directly. Mm -hmm. There's some cagey language, Mm -hmm. and it's completely misleading. It, It says that there's no obstruction, there's no collusion. And that's all we had to go on. We had this basically a political document and it's all we had to go on. And we are stuck reporting in real time on it without context, um, without any way to push back, again, without any documentary evidence. And we, by doing that- On a weekend. On a weekend, but we had tons of viewers, but by doing that and putting it out there, we give this political document, this misleading political document, a three week or so head start on the truth on the actual findings of the bullet report.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you left the house for that.
1: And and it's actually one of my biggest regrets in my career. And it's not necessarily something that would have, it's, it's something that I think is a good example of where we are failing, but it's also not something that is so easy to fix. Right. Because say we didn't go up with it. Say we held back right. and they said, we're going to wait for the document. What it would do is it would give Fox News and Breitbart and Gateway Pundit, whatever, um, all of this fodder to say that we hate Donald Trump and we won't report good news about him. And that yeah. would further distance us from a portion of the country who wants to believe that we are political actors, not unbiased journalists.
2: Yeah. Well, you brought him up again. Donald I'm Trump. sorry. No, that's... I'm sorry. Do you volunteer for that beat? Because you were, I mean, for people that don't know, you were, what are they, embedded with his campaign? What an ugly word in that case. You
1: know, Andy, I came on Conan with you. Like gum
2: stuck onto a wall. I came
1: on Conan with you after that, and I... I was so touched by the way you guys introduced me. You, you, you showed a highlight reel, but, and it was, you know, crazy and also funny, but also scary, but it was really, I felt it was meaningful and I felt like you, you saw the coverage. And so I want to say thank you for that.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Um, I don't know if you no, did I mean, it. I mean, I felt for it. Well, no, I mean, I, you know, I don't, but I mean, you know, I could, I agree with the sentiment. Thank so you. it's, but yeah, but they, but no, that was a segment producer and I think it was anybody with, Anybody with eyes and a heart looking at you over that time just and just imagining what it must be like and seeing some of those, you know, you know, I think the average viewer got a little tired. Of Trump rallies, And you had to go to every single one. So I
1: did not volunteer for it. Here's what happened. I was a foreign correspondent. I lived in London. I had a French boyfriend. I drank wine at lunch. <laughs> I, I was living the life. I think Ooh, la, la. I said out loud, I am never going back to America. There's nothing they can do to bring me back. I would take I would take no assignment. And I happened to come home for a couple of days just to say hi to people. And I was in the newsroom talking to a producer when um, Donald Trump had announced, but after it, it was a couple of days later, Macy's dropped him, Univision dropped him, that pageant oh, yeah. dropped him. So everything was yeah. falling apart for him, it seemed. And they said, Katie, can you cover this? You're just standing around. I mean, they weren't going to put a political reporter on it. They were going to put somebody who just happened to be in the newsroom, me. That's so why I covered it. And then I covered it the next day, just the fallout from his words. And then, you know, it didn't seem like he was quite going away yet. So they said, Katie, why don't you just stick around for a few weeks? You know, you'll go back to London after the summer. It'll be six weeks tops. Just follow follow the Trump campaign. And I remember saying, OK, And and the guy who assigned me to it told me as he was walking to another meeting, it was so unimportant that he didn't even have me in his office and he stepped into the elevator and then his last words were, and if he wins, you'll be a White House correspondent. Ha, 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 elevator doors close. And, you know, we know what happened. I ended up following him. What was supposed to be a six week assignment ended up being 510 days. I left milk in my refrigerator. I left clothes in my dryer in London. I didn't really go back ever after that. I think I slept in my own bed, total of eight nights. Oh my and God. I I was there from the very, basically the very beginning, all the way to the very end. And then when it came time to say, do you want to be a, a White House correspondent? I, I pulled myself out of the running even before they could ask. I said, I, there's no way in hell. There's no way in hell I'm going to this.
2: Yeah, yeah. What did that do to you as a person?
1: Oh, God, post traumatic stress. Um, I got, you know, I don't like talking about it, but I got death threats. And I still get some nasty, disgusting people sending me stuff online. Um, And it scares me. It scares me because now I'm a mom and I've got little kids. And so I get scared from my family. Um, It made me more pessimistic as a person. Um, The ugliness was depressing. Yeah, it was really depressing, and it it the misinformation, the intentional way people were using anger to sow division for their own personal gain,
0: mm-hmm.
1: bummed me out. It still bums me out. I still see it today. Um, I you know I worry about the state of things.
2: Yeah. Having been through that and having had that front row seat to coin a phrase, um, why do you think why do you think he is? Why do you think that this guy that had been like you know like he, his game show got canceled because he was not you know it was it was losing in the ratings. He need he you know that was that's one thing I love about Lawrence O'Donnell is that he knows show business and he knows the news and he's got enough people to really and he knows politics. Background. He worked in politics yeah. also. And I just remember where on a previous time when when Trump was gonna run for president and he said it a couple months before he's like on X date. He said Donald Trump will announce that he's not running for president because that's when his his uh whatever that game show was, well that's when his uh Game show contract is up and he needs the money to sign a new contract. And it happened. It happened that way the previous time when he didn't run for office. And and so it's like, here's this guy. And that if you're from New York is a clown, is like a clown version of a rich guy. How does that how does it happen? What are people what do you think people that are there that are giving you nightmares what is it about him?
1: Here's what they here's what they would say it. about him. They thought that they would point to a show and they would say he's a successful businessman. Look at everything he has. He would he would fly in on his private jet with the guy's name across it. Everything was gold and they looked at him and they thought, "God, that is success. He must know what he is doing." And they said that they liked what he was saying. They liked that he was saying things that other people were too afraid to say that immigrants were coming and making this country terrible, um, that it's okay to be angry about it, that it's okay to point the finger. Um, It's okay to make dirty jokes about your your colleagues because it's funny. You don't have to be so PC. The liberals are are trying to demonize you and make you feel bad about who you are. And they would say they connected with that. They connected with that strong attitude that he had. They felt like the world, they were told the world was complicated and it was full of nuance. And these problems that we're facing were big and hard to solve. And Donald Trump came in and said, no, they're not big. And no, they're not hard to solve. All you need is a guy who's willing to say the right thing and willing to do, the, do what's necessary. I can stand up. Make deals. Make deals. I can stand up to all these all these, you know, foreign politicians. I, I the strong men, I can take them down. I can negotiate in a way that no one else can. I know what I'm doing. Look at the business I did. I can bring it to the country. So there's that. I mean, there's there's other factors at play here. There's, I'm sure, you know, you can name them. Um, but I don't think we're going to have a real a real handle on the shift toward Donald Trump and what led to him and whatever happens after this until we get farther away. I think we're so in the weeds of it. I think it's hard to see, but I do think that there, the seeds were planted long ago. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, Steve Kornacki, wrote a great book called, I know I'm promoting my book, but he wrote a great book called The Red and the Blue, and it details the rise of partisanship. Mm -hmm. And he he puts a big focus on Newt Gingrich and C-SPAN. And when C-SPAN put cameras in Congress and how that, started to change things it's good hmm. it's interesting
2: that's interesting about because I would have, you know I would have said Fox not C-SPAN, C-SPAN. I would have said Rush Limbaugh on Fox but well oh,
1: they have they wow, have played C-SPAN. a big part but C-SPAN
2: read read the book it's good okay, okay I will I mean I'm gonna wait a little bit I'm gonna wait till we're done <laughs> um yeah no I mean that's I I mean I was just interested to get your take on it but I was at the time when he started doing it the thing I just kind of felt and i mean it was there it was a little fun to just watch him just crush the rest of the republican field i mean in some i mean it was fun it was a bummer in some ways but it was kind of like because I, the thing that struck me about it was that like he was taking dog whistles and making them bullhorns you know he's like oh you want to you want to dabble in racism here try this on for size Oh, you want to dabble in, you know, partisanship here. How about this? The other guys suck. You know, how, you want to dabble in, uh, you know, like. Uh, political violence. Yeah, political violence. Or you want to dabble in like, I don't I don't play by the rules. I make the rules. Here's all of it. Turned up to 10 or 11, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, enough about him. Uh, <laughs> um, well, now the book. Rough draft. Um, do you, Are you happy you've written it? Like, do you feel like there's been some kind of personal growth at the other end of it? I mean, you have to sit and talk to people like me endlessly. And <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, you, you know, you don't need therapy now. You get to talk about all this stuff
1: no, while promoting Andy, a you book. Know, exactly. I get to just talk to you, which makes me feel great. <laughs> no, I I, it's, <laughs> I I think it's a privilege to be on the show with you. I mean, I mean, I'm you know I'm in awe of uh, of the invite. Um, I do have to tell oh, a funny stop. story. So the invite came over Twitter, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So when the book came out, it's an emotionally difficult topic for me. I I went into a bunker. I said I can't see anything. I, I'm not reading anything about it. I'm not going to be on social media. I'm in my bunker, Tony. I'm giving you the keys to everything, my husband.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: so your invitation, well, me accepting your invitation, was Tony accepting your invitation?
0: <laughs> and I,
1: I, Tony said that he misread it and he thought you were inviting him on the podcast.
2: Oh, that was him that said that. Oh, that's I DM'd you. You DM'd me. For people, yeah, yeah. And then
1: he was so embarrassed because he misread it. I <laughs> misread your invitation.
2: Oh, my God. That's and hilarious. so
1: silly. And I, I laughed at him. I laughed
2: yeah, because at him. the end of it, I said, uh, you know, I asked you if you wanted to be on uh, to promote the book. And then and I said, you know, and uh, all my best uh, to your kids. And I said, "Oh, and your husband too, like as a joke, like." <laughs> and I guess he read that and thought he wants me to be on, which I—he'll be on, he'll be on soon. Don't worry about it. I mean, he fell into my trap, that you know. and So and funny. It's I so, need guests, but then it's hilarious that that was him I, doing that. I
1: had a good, good long laugh about it. So thank you for
2: that. Um, <laughs> well, but has the book been? Has it been a, like a cathartic thing? Like, it ultimately, has, a good it thing. It has.
1: you know, it was a really hard thing to write. It was a hard thing, you know, again, to to confront, to deal with. Um, I'm happy I wrote it and I'm happy I went to the places I refused to go for so long because if I kept running away, I was doomed to repeat the cycle that my dad repeated from his own childhood. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to throw potatoes at my husband's head. I didn't want to have. Yeah, I didn't want that to be the example for my kids.
2: Yeah, you don't want your kids growing up in that house.
1: Exactly. And so and so putting it out there and, and laying, laying bare just the truth, the good and the bad and the ugly um, has been helpful for me. It's also selfish because I want I want my kids to know me you know and yeah and they can't know me unless they know about LA and they know about their grandparents and everything that they did and i want them to have a concrete record of it look at how amazing your mom's life was the full the full scope of it and then look at all of the things that your grandparents did yeah there was some bad stuff but there was some crazy cool stuff as well and this is your legacy
0: yeah
2: That's great. Uh, You know, I'm glad. I'm glad because I can imagine it's spilling your guts is a risky thing to do. It's a risky thing to do, especially, you know, because. People do expect their TV journalists there to be some sort of. mm, I guess professional distance from sort of
1: but I wonder if that's a, what the a problem a warts is.
2: and all kind but of, I wonder if that's what the problem limit. is
1: that people don't know us and it's hard yeah. to trust us if you don't know us and yeah. and I'm kind of of the school that the more you know about me, the more you know where I'm coming from and how I grew up and who I am, what my values are then you could understand then you can understand how I'm reporting the news yeah. I think it's yeah. easy to demonize somebody you know nothing about. They're just yeah. a byline or they're just some face on the TV. It's easy to say, well, that person has bad intentions or that person, you know, doesn't actually care about what she's talking about or she's not. She's yeah. just reading the teleprompter. But if I tell you, here's who I am, here's everything, here's me, yeah. no me, I hope it's helpful in gaining some of the trust back that we've lost.
2: Yeah. Well, it's you know, it's like that pitfall. It's a pitfall of of the neutrality that people are supposed to have. It does end up making you feel like, you know, when you when you report on an outrage, the notion that you're not supposed to convey any outrage
0: is is.
1: I think you can do it and little, still be a little inhuman. I think you can you can do it and still be and still be unbiased. I think you can do it and still do it fairly. You can say, I think for. The Uvalde investigation that they found it could have been stopped within three minutes and then they waited in the hallways for over an hour, more than an hour, with their ballistic shields. I think you can say yeah. what the F. Yeah. Without yeah. that being unfair.
2: Yeah, there's no both sides in that yeah. one. Yeah. You know, which is probably why we're getting gun legislation out of it. Um well the the second question of this deal is, is where are you going? I mean, um, do you think is it kind of more of the same? I mean, you got two little kids to raise, so obviously that's coming. And as they get older, do you see do you see like there being a, a collision between being on camera every day and and raising them, especially like maybe when they get into school and their mom, well, I mean, I <laughs> guess you're you're familiar with what it's like to have like your mom and dad I be on TV. I am going
1: to milk it for as long as I can. Because <laughs> I know that they will turn 10, 11, or 12 and they will think I am deeply uncool. So I will, yeah. I will take them looking up to me and I will savor it for as long as I can. Where am I going? I'm raising my kids. I am going to work every day and I'm trying my best to find a way to communicate information to an audience of people that that might disagree with the information or might be distrustful of the information. I want to find more ways to get to more people. I'm actively trying to think of a way to talk to my contemporaries. You know, how do I get my friends, friends to watch the news? What do I need to, what sort of show does that look like? Is it on cable news or is it on different sort of outlet? Is it on the radio? is it on streaming who knows what is it so i'm thinking about that and you know if all hell breaks loose looking about a pa- looking to find a passport in europe somewhere <laughs> Find a Greek passport.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. My girlfriend has a UK passport. She's a dual citizen. You so
1: lucky like, man. You got to marry her to get that. Yeah.
2: I'm we're probably going to stick together just for that reason. I don't like her much, you know, but, <laughs> but she uh, has an exit yeah, ramp for, for you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, I you know, the, the, then the third one is, you uh, well, I did want to say any more books.
1: Oh my gosh! That, that crossed my mind. Not in the near future.
2: Not in you, That's enough.
1: Oh, not yeah, in the, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I kind of want to write one with my husband. Well, maybe that'll be fun, but not not yet. I got to get. Let me get this second kid out of diapers.
2: Okay. All right. I'm not. You know. I'm not your agent. Don't worry about me. <laughs> um, well, the next one is, is uh, you know, the the third question is, you know, what's the point of the Katie Tur story? What do you want people to take away?
1: The point is. I work in a business where we're supposed to tell the truth. And here is my truth. Sports and all. And what I found after writing it is that there are a lot of people out there who grew up in weird circumstances and you don't have to to be afraid to talk about it. You don't have to feel like you are somehow damaged. And that estrangement is not uncommon. I think one in four people deal with an estrangement of a of a close family member.
2: I'm raising my hand. Yeah.
1: And you yeah. know it's a two-way street.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well that's yeah that's good advice and it's and it is true that you know uh, any bit you share I do feel ends up any humanity that you share with people in you know in good in good faith uh it is never it's usually never a mistake it's usually you just end up making somebody feel uh a little more okay Because you're, you know, you know, you have a, you have a platform, and you're saying, you know, yeah, it was a nightmare, (laughs) you know, what a mess that was back there, and they can go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and that sounds familiar. For a long time, I didn't want to talk about it because I thought people would judge me. Yeah, or they'd look at me and think, oh, that's the victim, and I don't want to be the victim.
2: Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Well, thank you so much uh for spending this time with me i really appreciate it i know how much how valuable your time is uh much more so than mine i mean (laughs) after this i'm just going to stare at a wall probably that Um, sounds glorious (laughs) (laughs) take a week off for some wall staring um and tell your husband he will be on soon oh no
1: you don't have to have no he's not charming no i will he's not fun he's not interesting
2: I know, I know. And, you know, yeah, but I, uh, you know, I, I will. I'll have him on. <laughs> Andy, I'll have him on. You don't have to have uh, him. No, because I'm, but I will, I, you know. Uh, but anyhow, thank you so much. And uh, thank all of you out there for listening. And uh, I'll be back next week. Thank you,
1: Andy. i got a big, big love.
2: The Three Questions with Andy Richter is
1: a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. The associate producer is Jen Samples, supervising producer Aaron Blair, and executive producers Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts.
2: Can't you tell my loves are growing?